0: Well, welcome everyone. I know more people are trickling in, but yes, we will get started because we got some housekeeping to take care of, and then um, we'll be underway. So, thank you, everyone who um, who's joining us today. I'm really excited to be co-hosting this uh, webinar slash podcast with Zoot. Um, all right, let's do this. Okay.
1: Welcome to Five Hundred One C Three B S. I'm your host, Sue Velasco, director of the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton's Mahalo School of Business and Economics. Join me today as we debunk the myths of the social sector. We will cut down the weeds and clear your path for organizational growth.
0: Well, once again, welcome, everyone. My name is Victoria Torres. I'm with the Samueli Foundation. I'm the director of Impact uh, there with a specific focus in Anaheim. And I'm also the host of a podcast called The Nonprofit Life, which I know some of you have heard of. So thank you for those of you following that. Uh, and today I'm happy to be co-hosting the 501c3bs podcast hosted by Zoot Velasco, who is also the director of the Giannichi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton, um, who, which hosts the G3X series and conference every summer. Uh, he's also an adjunct professor there in the Mahalo Mih- Business School, um, and many of you also know him as a very successful ED CEO within our nonprofit sector. So, very very excited to be here to do this with you. Um, personally, Zoot is also my friend and colleague, and sometimes partner in crime in certain projects. So, thank you, Zoot, for asking me to to do this.
1: Thank you for doing it. I appreciate it.
0: Yes. So um, we are here to talk about your recent uh, Financing with the Stars. So you conducted a research report, uh, a white paper, and I had the pleasure of reading both the short version and, because I'm a data enthusiast, the longer version. And so we're going to really dive into that today. And um, so I thought I'd just start off with, you know, how did we, how did you get here? How did uh, this come about? I know it's, uh, it was a a labor of love. Uh, Brought it up a couple times, and so congratulations on finally doing it. But how did this uh, idea spark your brain?
1: Well, thanks for asking. So, so uh, many of you know that I used to run the Muckenthaler Cultural Center in Fullerton, and I ran that center between 2007 and 2016, so right through the recession. I, and when I took it over, we were uh, we were 20 percent in debt on a. $400,000 budget and about to go under and that was in 2007 and then six months later the recession hit and during the recession you know we could have been even worse except we'd already kind of started our recovery when the recession hit and during the recession we grew by 400 percent and uh, by the time I left you know we were a 1.6 million dollar organization we tripled our endowment we were doing very well People were asking me during the recession how we did that. I ended up writing a book about it, ended up um, speaking about it, and that led to an MBA and led to me starting nonprofit management programs at three different universities and then running the GNSU. So my whole career changed from being this former breakdancer arts guy to being this nonprofit expert. Uh, because of what happened during the recession. And the first thing I thought of when I came to the GNS, called the Gneshi Center for Nonprofit Research, research was in the name, um, was I need to do a research project. And I've never done one. So I need to, to get some help. And I want to do one specifically on something that's been bugging me ever since uh, the recession ended, which is I'm I'm not the only person who grew during the recession in Orange County. I would love to find out who else did and f- talk to them, figure out what it is that they did and what we had in common and kind of compare notes and see, I mean my, I had a theory that there were some common threads that would be great best practices for any organization in a recession or not. And um my theory was correct. Um, when I actually did the research, and I was, um, but but I, I learned so much more than I ever expected, and there were so many surprises and turns around the corner, that when I think back on it, shouldn't have been surprises, but they were, and uh, so many things that I think we can all learn from. So I I really enjoyed doing this project.
0: That's great, and I think it's such a timely topic, uh, given mm-hmm. where we are uh, as a well. Country, world, nonprofit community—that this is a very timely conversation to have because um, it's very likely that we're um, in another one of those downturns. And so, what yeah. can we learn from what happened? So,
1: let's. Well, so- you know, before you move on, you know, it, it was funny because I started this project a year ago when the when the economy was just booming and. I went around tried to find funding for it, and nobody wanted to fund it because they're like, "Why do we need to care about what happened during the recession? The economy's great," and nobody wanted to fund it. And I ended up having to fund it myself out of my own pocket. And now I look back and I'm like, "Oh, I wish I was looking for money now to find funding for it," you know. Well,
0: you never know. You never know what could happen out of this. So I think it, the stars are aligned. Um, so kudos to you for. Uh, for just continuing forward, because now we're in a in a stage of yes, how did those organizations make it through, and what do I need to know and prepare for? Um, so going on from what you just ended, so what was surprising, the most surprising about the research as you were diving deep into it?
1: The most surprising thing is something that maybe shouldn't be so surprising, but it is. Oh, you know what? Before I show you this, I I don't I I'm giving away the punchline here. We, <laughs> yeah. have polls. we have two poles. We have yeah. two poles. Sorry, I'm I'm about to give away the punchline. Let me launch a poll because I want to see what you all think. Um, so I just launched a poll. I'm gonna give you about 30 seconds to fill this out. I would love everybody to fill it out. When you think of nonprofit fundraising, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Okay, it's uh the horse race is on, grants are winning, grants are winning, major gifts is coming up. Gala events is coming from behind. Oh, grants is still w- major gifts, it's grants and major gifts at the rail. And it looks like half of, about a third of the people are saying grants, third are saying major gifts, almost a quarter gala events, and then there's a few other things there. Earned income got 7%. Okay. Uh, yeah. Grants, major gifts. That's, and and honestly, if you ask me this, this is what I would say grants, major gifts. Uh, those would be the first two out of mine. Um, maybe some people would say endowment building, some people would say gala. Almost nobody would say earned income. It was 7%, two people, okay? I'm going to launch this poll, and I want you to answer this question. What do you think is the largest source of revenue on average for nonprofits? Endowment income, individual donations, corporate sponsorship, government grants, earned income, fundraising event uh, income. And I'm going to end the poll and share the results. 48% Forty-eight percent of you, almost half of you, said individual donations. Twenty-eight percent earned income. Um, so uh, maybe some of those twenty-eight people saw my slide <laughs> <laughs> because I put it up too quickly. <laughs> this is a this is a slide that I found online from two thousand. I want you to notice this is from two thousand fourteen, and there's a reason why it's such an old uh, statistic. And the reason is because after 2014, the National Center for Charitable Statistics, the Urban Institute, they stopped including earned income in their uh, statistics. So you have to go back to 2014 to see it as a statistic. However, if you go to the California Association nonprofits that Jim Masaoka runs, who, um, quick plug, will be my guest next week on our G3X Conversations, they actually have much more recent data, which is very similar to this. Their data shows that if you take out universities and college, uh, universities and hospitals, that 65% of all income in California for organizations is earned income, 65%. That's if you take out colleges and um, and uh, hospitals. So this shows 50%, but then it also shows up here, fees for service goods from government. So government contracts, not grants. Uh, Here's government grants over here. Contracts are also earned income. So if you put this together, 73% was earned income. And if you go by California, it was 65%. So um, what I was most excited by is that my research bared this out, that Earned income is by far the largest category of funding, and yet we spend so much time talking about um, other sources of income that are not earned income and spending so much time dealing with it. So if you think about if you put all of the grants and individual donations and major gifts and it comes out to about 21 percent of income. The most most people don't make on on fundraising events more than five to ten percent of their budget, but if you put all of this together, it's about twenty one percent. We spend an enormous amount of time as organizations on fundraising events, way way too much, an enormous amount of time on courting major gifts, and you know um, probably don't spend enough time on endowments in some cases. But we spend a lot of time on gifts. We spend a lot of time on grants. But here's these huge sections of income that we completely ignore. And if you were to talk to someone in the for-profit sector, they would be like, well, yeah, of course you're going to spend money and time on earned income. That's where." But in our sector, it's completely the opposite because we've kind of been brainwashed into this mentality of fundraising. And what actual fundraising is, uh, is something we really need to pay more attention to. So that that's kind of what surprised me the most.
0: Interesting, yeah, and I think that's a yeah. We hear the word fundraising, and so we definitely assume that it's through those other uh, items that you listed: grants, individuals. So um, in the data, let's let's. So that's so surprising that it's this is about earned income. So a lot of the organizations that grew they really redefined themselves and looked at what are the earned income opportunities to help them sustain, which I think is a really good, I think that's always a good conversation to have internally as an organization. The organizations that you researched and then whittled down into your deeper dive of, of uh, discussions, um, they came from the, let's look at just look at time frame 2008 and 2012, correct? You looked at those two 990 sets?
1: Yeah, so so I'll, I'll just kind of give you an overview of how I did this study and what my data came from. So what I was most interested in was finding out who started out small in 2008 and who grew to large by 2012, which is, you know, by all intents and purposes, the end of the recession. And so who during that four-year span went from small to large? Um, And
0: define define small to large because we all have a different definition of that. Yeah.
1: Well, and then then beyond that, who was able to keep that growth going after the recession all the way up until today? Um, So when you talk about who's small and who's large, um, it's really important to know that, uh, first of all, I, I studied all the organizations in Orange County and the Inland Empire. Now, when I started out, I was only interested in Orange County because Cal State Fullerton's in Orange County. I ran a place in Orange County. Orange County was what I was interested in. But I decided to include the Inland Empire because if you take San Bernardino, Riverside and Orange County together as a whole, they almost exactly mirror the United States. In terms of demographics in terms of income in terms of rural versus urban in terms of republican versus democrat um you know if you look at the whole landscape of the inland empire and and oc together you have almost a mirror of the united states the only thing that's a little different is there's a higher degree of asian population in southern california than the united states as a whole but once you get rid of la and you just take orange county with the inland empire together they really do look exactly like the rest of the US. So that was the reason I included the Inland Empire. And when you take those those three counties together, you're talking about 6,450 organizations. Now, 74% of them are under $200,000 and it's important, uh, $200,000 a year income is what we're talking about, income. Now, it's important to know that 66% are under $50,000, meaning that they don't have to file a 990. And that's right. an estimate because they don't file a 990. But nationally and California statistics show uh, with the IRS that 66% are under 50,000. So when you get that's that two-thirds plus the third that are actually filing tax returns, you end up with 74% that are under 200,000 a year. So those are very, very small organizations that um, are not growing or they're growing very slowly or they're having trouble. And then you have organizations that are in that middle range where they're not quite that small. They've kind of overcome that first hurdle of 200,000 a year, which is a hurdle to get over. And that, that kind of, once you get over that hurdle, you tend to grow. And then when you hit a million dollars a year budget, you get to a point where you can grow very fast because you have access to more funds. You have better networks. You have more staff, all of these things. So what it comes down to is that um, is that a million dollar organizations and above, they make 94 percent of all the income in all three counties. So. Uh, that's pretty amazing. And when you think about it, 46% of that income, almost half comes from just four hospitals in Orange County in the Inland Empire. So 46% of all income. So if you ever think that healthcare is not broken in the United States, just look at this 46% of all income for all nonprofits in all three counties goes to just four hospitals. Um, And if you look at healthcare in general, it gets 65% statewide. So once you take the hospitals out, um, you know, then the rest of that, the the big majority of that is going to larger organizations. Now, organizations under 200,000, they're only getting 3%. And the organizations in the middle, they're 15% of organizations, they're getting 3% of the funding. So they're kind of working it up. So what I looked at most were organizations that were under a million dollars in 2008 or around a million dollars. Um, if they were, you know, had a, a larger budget than a million and a half, I didn't consider them. Um, and actually within my stats, it was, there were two million dollar organizations and under a million and a half. There weren't really any organizations in between. Yeah. So um, I was looking at things, at organizations that are under a million or just around a million, um, and And in order to qualify as somebody I wanted to interview, they had to grow to well over a million by the end of the recession. So um, and, and when I looked at that out of that sixty four hundred and fifty organizations, there were only um, there were only tw- uh, twenty nine organizations that did that and were able to maintain it. So um, if you look at these are all the organizations that grew from small to large. of them grew during the recession. They got some influx of cash, but then they weren't able to maintain it. They ended up going back to pre-recession levels. And 14% of them went completely defunct afterwards. So you're talking about 65% of organizations that got some help during the recession. They couldn't maintain it. There were only... You know, there were 7% that started out large. I didn't really look at them because they had the staff to do it. Honestly, I was surprised there weren't more organizations that started large. And then there were these 14% that started very, very tiny, and they grew and grew and grew, but they never got over the million-dollar mark. Um, There were only these 29 organizations that started small and grew to over a million dollars and were able to maintain it all the way until 2018, which was the last time we had a filing for the IRS uh, 990 forms that are public. So that's kind of how I came up with the 29 that I call the recession stars. These are people that defied all the odds in the recession. I mean, I don't know if you, like I had to really think about what it means to start out small and grow that big um, during a time when everyone else is shrinking. It's really, really difficult in normal times, let alone in that time.
0: Yeah, so, so a lot of data there, and I, I hear you, and, and so I want to kind of go back, and um, so just a little bit on that data before we move forward into those 29. I'm curious, of the 46% that suffered a loss during that period, um, did you see any commonalities as to them and where they lost? Was it due to government funding, individual, private? Just curious if you saw any anything there.
1: So I really just focused my research on these 29 organizations that grew, but I had to get to the point where I found them. And what I did notice is that none of the people that grew um, had any commonality in terms of that, that they were helping in the recession somehow. Like they weren't organizations that were recession oriented. Uh-huh. Um, Cause my first thought was, you know, maybe a lot of them grew because they were embracing the recession and they were helping people who right. were, having trouble. That was not the case. Like, like and how, the, right? Yeah. And so I, I can only I can only guess because I didn't really study the people who were failing. But I I did notice that they got uh, an influx of cash during the recession and then weren't able to to keep it up, which makes me think if I was in a funder's perspective, helping yeah. somebody out short term doesn't really help them if you're not also giving them the tools to sustain it, right? um the right. leadership tools
0: yeah that was yeah that was so that was the second part of my question um in the in your 20 page report that i got to read um this one sentence was very intriguing to me as a funder um when you said sex 65 of organizations received an influx of income during the recession and then went defunct defunct meaning they maintained a new level like there was their record high um and then they plateaued and then they they to stop growing or shrank to their pre-2008 levels. And so just like you said, as a funder, um, those that influx, you know, I wonder if those influx of uh, these like relief funds, right? There's a lot of relief fund efforts going out right now and we're putting a lot of uh, funds and cash towards COVID or or towards housing at the time, maybe it was housing, but it's relief, like we need cash now. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a growth, but then it stalled and then it went down. So I I thought that that was a very, very interesting sentence uh, in that report.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the the people who continued to grow, they had these things in common. And one of the things they had in common was that all of them had been through some kind of a management or leadership class, whether it was that they had a background in leadership in a for-profit sector, or in some cases, they were, they were, um, um, faith-based leaders who had had a class through their church in how to run an organization, but all of them had some kind of training in how to manage and how to lead. And that was important. And I think I think when funders give out sums of money to smaller organizations, which I encourage them to do because smaller organizations need to grow, they need to do it with technical assistance um, of how to lead for organizations that you know, maybe don't have that, you know?
0: Yeah, great. Well, then let's get into the stars. Um, So what were the commonalities among those who grew during this time?
1: Uh, Really shocked me. One of them is that none of the organizations were like monolith. There weren't all the same kind of organization that are very recession oriented. We had housing social service organizations, which is what I expected, but there were only two or three of them. Um, we had an animal shelter, a youth education program, an after-school program. We had three youth sports programs, um, one or two historic arts programs. We had a veterans group. They, they were all over the map. I mean, uh, there there was one organization. Their whole goal was just to create a 9/11 holiday. Um, there was an RV club, you know, and then about a third of them were faith-based in some way, shape, or form. So, uh, you know, they were all over the map. So it was interesting to me that, okay, if you guess that they were all recession based, you're wrong. Um, The next thing is the revenue. So uh, three quarters of them actually, I think, let's see, 27, 48, 60, 69 percent of them got 100 percent or close to it of their revenue all from earned income. So uh, 21 percent. And to be in this category, you had to get at least 85% of your income from this source. So uh, 21% got at least 85% of their income from social enterprise, 27% from government contracts. Now, it's important to know there's a difference between government grants and government contracts. Grants are short term. They're usually two to three years for a new program or something you're expanding. Um, or something that the government needs right away and then it ends. A contract is something that can be renewed year after year after year and it's a fee for service because your organization is doing something that the government uh, doesn't have the capacity to do on its own. So it's a contract for service. So 27% are contracts for service and then 21% are earned revenue fees where almost all of their money comes from a fee. So for example, the uh, animal shelter got almost all of their funds from fees and they were able to figure out a way to leverage more fees and to, um, to reach more people. So that's how they grew. Uh, there was a sports child sports, uh, soccer organization that all their money comes from parents' fees and they just leveraged themselves to grow into new groups. And a lot of this is because organizations, um, position themselves with really great programs, high quality programs that people love. And then when uh, other people lost revenue and went under, they ended up picking up all of their clients. Um, And so they would pick up their fees or they would pick up their contracts or they would pick up uh, social enterprise. So um, that was a a common theme where as other competing, competing organizations that for those government contracts or for those fees went under, they would pick up their clients. Um, Only 31% had traditional fundraising, but even in that group, at least half of their, uh, the majority of them, at least half of their money came from earned income. So a lot of it was revenue uh, based. That was what surprised me the most.
0: And one last question before we move into the, um, the characteristics of these organizations. Was there any distinction among the faith-based orgs related to their earned income?
1: That was really interesting, too, because um, remember that there was a, a three point something percent that grew during the recession, uh, but only 29 were able to keep it off and so there there was i think 207 organizations that grew but only 29 were able to continue to grow after the recession was over and of those 207 they were really all over the gamut we had faith-based organizations of every faith but of the 29 that continued to grow they were all christian-based organizations so a lot of the organizations that did well during the recession, we're not able to maintain it afterwards, except for these very few select group that happen to all be Christian-based.
0: Interesting. Okay, thank you. And thank you, uh, everyone, for those questions. Continue to put them in there as we move along. So now let's go into the characteristics that you noticed of the organizations that uh, that you got the pleasure of interviewing. What were some commonalities of theirs that you found?
1: There, There's really seven things. And, you know, I've kind of written this up as five things. I've written up as four things. I've written up as seven Mm -hmm. things. It depends on how you want to slice it. But for the sake of the PowerPoint, I thought I would maybe get into a little more details as as seven things. So the the first thing is that um, all of them had that I interviewed had an amazing capacity for leadership. And all of them mentioned in their interviews the need to build other leaders that would carry on the mission. So um, it's kind of what I noticed among all of them that succeeded is they were very good at being evangelical. And I don't mean that in a Christian way. I just mean that they were very good at kind of um, talking about their mission first and foremost in every aspect of their life. Like I feel like if I had met any of them in an elevator within Two minutes, I'd be hearing about their mission, no matter what question I asked them or talk to okay. them about that. They were just so mission centric and and that they were so evangelical about their mission that they were constantly trying to recruit others to their mission, either as yeah. a client, as a partner. And I know that's true for myself, um, you know, uh, as a as a as a funder, as a client, as a partner, they were always trying to recruit other people to care about what they care about. And, you know, honestly, if you meet anyone today who's uh, very active in Black Lives Matter or very active in, you know, any of the hot topics of today, you'll see how passionate they are about their mission and how much they want everyone to be part of it. Right. So right. that's that's how they were. So that was the first thing.
0: And- um, I want to no, And I, I like that you brought that up, you know, this, like, the dynamic leadership and what way think is important to note of that is um, it's not just building the great next leader. I think we think about succession planning and who's going to, who's, who can I pass the torch to? Like there's only one torch. Um, and in here you make note in, in your story, actually that you shared in the uh, article that it was about, it's not just about staff, but it's about volunteers, parents, mm-hmm. clients. It's, really building an army of leaders that are for the cause, not just internally in your page structure.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I, um, I'm writing the book now. I'm writing a book version of this and, and kind of what people should be doing. And I, I use as an example in the book, Salvation Army. I don't know if you guys know the history of Salvation Army, but it was started by in London by a preacher and his wife who really got tired of people um talking down to the poor in their congregation and doing the opposite of what a christian's supposed to do you know it's like oh we don't want those people in our church and so they went out and started a a mission on the street and when they came up with the idea of creating it as a quote-unquote army with actual uniforms and giving people who they met and converted uh, and a position in their army. So now they're a sergeant or a lieutenant. It gives them a, you know, these people who were the dregs of society and they were looked down on now have this position of respect. It, yeah. it completely changed their whole mindset and it made the Salvation Army grow like wildfire. Like it was one of the quickest growing nonprofits in the history of humanity because they were able to really kind of implement this idea of, Leaders building other leaders. So, I think um, if somebody asked me what leadership is, that's the first thing I would say it's a person who makes other leaders. Yes. Um, Yes. In
0: all forms and and fashions, right? Not just as it relates to the organizational structure.
1: Yeah. And if you take number one and number two together, they're always thinking about their mission. They're always trying to recruit people to their mission. And they're always trying, they're not being precious about, hey, I'm the leader. They're they're always trying to make other people. And, you know, I think about when I was a consultant and I would go around, I mean, I'm still a consultant, but I would go around, people would hire me to come and help them figure out how to make money. And, you know, they're often small organizations led by an an elderly person and they would say I would say well have you considered you know getting some students in here to help you that could help you with the internet and they say well you know a student I did recruit some students but they didn't want to do it the way I want to do it so I kicked them out (laughs) you know and there's this whole being precious about the mission and then, you know, having that martyr idea that I'm the martyr who has to do this all by myself. And those are the ones that are never going to grow. It's the people who are really thinking in a mission-centric way, building other leaders and making everybody care about the mission and a leader and not being precious about that has to all come through me. Those are the mm-hmm. ones that are going to grow.
0: Great, great.
1: And you might lose control of it. I mean, it might change, but it's going to grow. Um and it's going to become its own entity, maybe in a way, you know.
0: So what were some of the best practices and management of leadership that you found?
1: So, um, like, like I said, every single person that I interviewed um, and some of them like um, Solidarity is a great example. Solidarity is a, a, a Christian group that was founded in South Fullerton, by some young people that much like the Salvation Army, they didn't like the way the poor were talked about in their church and they wanted to go out and they were, you know, kind of wealthy people of color that wanted to go out and live among the poor and work in the neighborhood that would become their neighborhood. So they actually got a, you know, an apartment they talk about, you know, it was the first time they had roaches and they had to deal with that. And they actually got an apartment in the neighborhood they wanted to work in and became part of the neighborhood and um, they went through a management course within their church, you know, and and they were just in their twenties when they started this. Whereas other people like uh, Cure Duchesne is an example of a person who was a, you know, kind of a hotshot for-profit leader, had been through management, had, you know, I think an MBA, um, had done a lot of work and then founded this because her son got the disease And she wanted to do something to help her son. So she founded this organization and she brought all this experience with her. But every single person, whether it was something they got um, through church or something they, they got as an MBA, they all had some background in leadership and management.
0: Got it. Got it. And so I'm sure that leads into number four, which is within leadership, how they built strategic partnerships and solid networks during that time, because I know for a fact, too, just in the work that I'm doing with our grantees and the, the cohorts that I run, um, it is definitely about leveraging and leaning on those who can offset, you know, programming or do things that you just don't no longer have time for or, or can't find the funding for. So talk about the types of strategic partnerships and solid networks that these organizations had.
1: So so every single person that I interviewed to a T... To a First and foremost, when I said what is what do you think is most responsible for your success, the first thing all of them said was partnerships. And um, you know, it's funny because I just did a strategic partnerships workshop with 1 OC and we had I think six people sign up. Oh. <laughs> most people most people are not interested in, you know, it's not sexy. It's if it doesn't have the name fundraising in the title, people don't want to come uh to a workshop on it. But this is probably the most important thing that people can do, because yeah. if, if you're out there working both your in real life networks, your IRL networks, as well as your social media networks, um, mm-hmm. if you're doing that, you're creating partnerships. You're talking about your mission everywhere you go. You're building other leaders. You're creating these partnerships. And a lot of uh, most of the people I interviewed, they started out very, very small and some of them using their own money um uh, uh, one one guy I interviewed who started uh creative what 's the name of it? creative solutions uh, it's a counseling agency he's now in five counties he started out using his own money two hundred and fifty dollars from the sale of a property that he had to start the organization and every single one of them succeeded because they were really good at working their networks you know mm-hmm. being this mission centric person who's bringing people into the fold, saying, hey, come and help me. I need help. Let's do this. And they never asked for money. They weren't looking for money. They're looking for resources. And I yeah. think one of the biggest things that we do wrong in the United States is everybody's crying that they're poor. We don't have enough money. But we're in one of the biggest countries in the world with resources, um, You know, the richest countries in the world resource-wise. And there's almost always a way to get what you need done with or without money if you're looking for it. So these are organizations that never went out and said, I need um, $5,000 to start a marketing campaign. They would go to somebody who is a web designer and say, hey, would you donate your web design services? Hey, would yeah. you donate your your internet, uh, AT&T or you know, whatever? They would, they would never ask for money. They would ask for what it was that they needed. And that would usually come, it's like if you're, if you stop at a a freeway ramp and there's a guy there with a sign that says, we'll work for food, or, you know, I want to work, help me with a job. You're more likely to give them money than somebody who says, I don't want to work. I just want the money, you know, (laughs) and I've seen those signs too. And some people think they're funny and they'll give money. But I think most people want the idea that you're going to do this no matter what, and then I'll invest in you. And that's it. People that give money are not donors. They're not donating to your organization. I hate that word donors because the uh, the idea is like you give blood or you give money, you give a, an old coat to uh, a thrift shop, that's donating. You don't want anything back. But when you are giving money to something, you're investing in social impact and you want a return on your investment and social impact in that community, regardless of what the community is. So, um, we have to start thinking of people as partners and investors and not as donors.
0: Right. Yes. No. And I tell people all the time, um, the, the bigger, the biggest thing I can actually give you is connection and information and resource or the name of a person that can, that can figure that out. Um, because yeah, I'm, so much more than just a a funder. Um, I, you know, me personally, I know the Samueli's hired me to be a resource, you know, in Anaheim for nonprofits. And so I agree with you. And I I think that's the best way you can leverage, um, not just your donors, but other nonprofits, your board, right. Your committees, nonprofits talk, I, I hear constantly like, Oh, my board, has just gone MIA since COVID hit. Um, And so it's all about how do you re-engage them? How do you get them to be these same leaders and work through your committees and and educate them that it's not about the money you bring, it's about the connections you bring and the resources you bring to the organization, not just your give um, or your monetary give or get, it's also your skill and the connections that you currently have with you. So that's great.
1: to thank Victoria Torres for being my guest host on this episode of 501c3bs. You can find her on her own podcast called The Nonprofit Life. Stay tuned next week for part two of Recession Stars. Thank you for listening to 501c3bs, deep programming for organizational growth. I'm your host, Velasco. 501c3bs is sponsored by... The Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mihalo School of Business. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mihalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zoopvelasco.com, and my book, The First 100 Days on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian coro group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupo grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.